0: Well, good morning. It's great to see you today. We are uh, diving into God's Word together. Feel free to fan yourself as appropriate during this. The whole room's kind of vibrating. It's kind of cool from this vantage point up here. You know, uh, back when I was in high school, my friends and I would select a word for the year, kind of our pet word that we would use all the time and pretty much wear it out. And one year, I remember that our pet word was The word outrageous. It's like everything was outrageous, you know. If we saw a girl walking down the hall that we thought was hot, she was outrageous. And if we saw a cool car, and there were a lot of cool cars in the 70s. uh, We said, outrageous, man. Or uh, if our team won that day, they were outrageous. You kind of get the idea. Well, as I was studying Matthew chapter 3 for this sermon, which is about the life and message and ministry of John the Baptist, that word came back to my mind because in the truest sense of the word, John the Baptist was an outrageous dude, an outrageous fellow. He really was. And that's what Matthew, Matthew chapter 3 is about. Now, we know who this guy was. John the Baptist, he was Jesus' cousin, right? His second cousin, really. His mom and John's, or His mom and Jesus' mom were cousins, so it makes them second cousins. So even though Jesus and John lived in different towns growing up, they probably knew each other. They probably, you know, played together when their families visited and horsed around like cousins do. But by the time Matthew picks up John's story here in Matthew chapter 3, John's a 30-year-old man, just slightly older than Jesus, and he's a man on a mission. In another account we read, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. And so John bursts onto the scene in Israel, and we see, first of all, in Matthew 3, that John's a preacher. He's a preacher, but he's not preaching in a church or a synagogue or out on the street corner. Where is he preaching? He's preaching out in the wilderness, like one of the outrageous prophets of old. John stands outside the city, apart from its wickedness and idolatries and so forth, and he rails against the evils of those living in the city, while also offering them a message of hope. John's kind of a novelty because it's been hundreds of years since God has had a prophet in Israel to speak on his behalf to the people. But even though John's outside the city, he's attracting lots of attention in the city, creating a stir, this fiery young prophet. People are talking to each other at the coffee shops and at the malls. They're saying, Hey, did you hear about the new preacher out in the desert? He's outrageous. He's young. He's scary, gifted. He can bring the heat, I'm telling you. I heard he even called some guys snakes. We ought to go out and check that out. And a lot of people did. Large crowds of people came out to hear him preach. Well, what did they hear? Matthew 3 opens like this In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was John's powerful and outrageous message to the people who came out. Repent! Now, first off, what's implied here is that John had spent lots of time out in the wilderness alone with the Lord. And it was in those moments of solitude with his God that he had received from the Lord the message that he was to give to the people. And this, I think, is a pattern that's crucial for all preachers. First spend time with God, then spend time with people. This was impressed upon me deeply in my own training. Private devotion precedes public ministry. And so if you're being called into a ministry of preaching or teaching, make sure that you're spending time with God first so that you have something to say to the people. Well, that's what John did. So John, the preacher man, wandering around in the wilderness, looking up into the heavens, seeking the face of God, receives from God the message that he is to then turn around and deliver to the people repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand the dawn of a new age is coming is what he was saying and I think it's important to note that John was kind of a bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament in God's story one era was coming to a close and a new era was dawning and his message was meant to jolt his listeners into the realization that things were about to change big time a new era was coming, and if they wanted to thrive in this new era, they were going to need to have a new mindset, and that's what the word repent means, right? Change your mind, change your mindset, rethink how you think. John knew what often happens to people, both then and now, is that our mindset becomes kind of calcified, and we, we get into this rut of thinking a certain way, but when God's about to do something new, unless people are open to changing their minds, they're going to miss out. And so John looked at people and said, repent, change your mindset. Well, what were those first century Jewish people going to need to think differently about? Well, lots of things. What God was like, what's required to be in good standing with God, what the purpose of the law was, what sin is, what righteousness is, what all of those animal sacrifices were really for, who would make it into God's kingdom, what were the entrance requirements? to be a a part of God's people? What kind of Messiah was really promised? Lots of things they were going to have to rethink. John was fired up about the soon arrival of the king and the inauguration of his new kingdom. And he was sent to prepare the hearts of the people to receive their king by preaching a powerful message of repentance. And then notice second, his mission, verse 3. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said the voice of one crying in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord make his paths straight. So this is John's prophesied uh, one of this is John's prophesied mission. One of Matthew's passions in his book is to help us understand that everything that happened with Jesus Christ was a fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy and prediction. And so in Matthew you see a lot of statements like this was to fulfill what was written in the prophets. And I think in a way he was declaring that Israel should have been looking for these things. They should have recognized them when they happened because they were all predicted and recorded in the Old Testament Jewish scriptures, including John's mission. So here Matthew quotes Isaiah chapter 40 and he applies it to John and basically he's saying John is that guy that Isaiah predicted would come just ahead of the Messiah. John is the one sent by God to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. So in God's plan, Messiah would come but he would be preceded by another man with a prophetic voice who would speak a message that would prepare the way for Messiah, announce his arrival. Now notice, it says, prepare the way, make his paths straight, and that's a metaphor. Think about roads for a minute. Now, the roads back then were not nice paved roads like we have today. They were horrible roads. (laughs) They really were. They were rocky and uneven and full of ruts, and traveling on them could be quite treacherous. But certain roads were designated for the travel of kings, for royalty. You've heard of the king's highway, right? And so when a king was coming into town, laborers would be sent out and assigned to a road to to even out that road to remove the rocks and the boulders and shave down the ridges, fill in the ruts. Kind of like needs to be done down on Stigler, close to Morse Road, you know? Fill it in, for crying out loud. Anyway, these guys were sent out to smooth the way, to prepare the way for the coming of the king, and that's the metaphor used here for John's mission. John was sent in advance to pave the way for the arrival of King Jesus, to prepare the hearts of the people to live under his rule and reign. And that's what Isaiah had prophesied. But really, everything about John was prophetic, not just his mission. He was a prophet in every sense of the word, really the last of the Old Testament prophets. And we know something about prophets, don't we? Prophets were always kind of what? Strange, eccentric kind of people, and John was no exception. Look at the description given him, given of him in the next few verses. Verse four: John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. So he looked like a prophet. He looked outrageous, really. He fit the profile, right? He looked like a prophet. He ate like a prophet. In fact, it's real interesting. This description of John matches the description of a famous Old Testament prophet named Elijah. That's right. In fact, it's almost an exact match from 2 Kings chapter 1. And there's a reason for that. There was a prediction in the Old Testament that the one who would come to prepare the way for the Lord would be cut out of the same cloth as the prophet Elijah. Listen to one of the last verses in the Old Testament. Malachi 4.5, it says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And so John was a prophet who came in the spirit and power of Elijah. Even back before John was born, when the angel was announcing to his father Zechariah what his son would be like, the angel said, He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. And Jesus himself would later say this of his own cousin, For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. And so John came, cut from the same mold as the Old Testament prophet Elijah, looking a bit eccentric, eating bugs, and speaking to the people on behalf of God. And like all great prophets, John came preaching and demanding that people change their lives. Along with his call for repentance, John called people to come down to the river, <laughs> come down to the Jordan River and be baptized to demonstrate that they were sincerely repenting of their sins and turning and preparing their hearts for Messiah. And when I study this, I, I didn't know this before, but that would have been a new thing for Jews, being baptized. They were accustomed to using baptism for Gentile converts coming into the, the, uh, the faith of Judaism. So this was, it would have been new. Now, as people came down, if if people were coming to be baptized and John sensed that they were phonies, that they weren't sincere, what would he do? Well, he'd just call them out right there on the spot. He demanded lifestyle change as evidence of genuine repentance. He was not content with words alone, words of confession, but like the prophets of old, he looked at people in the eye and said, change your life. Let your life line up with what your lips are speaking and like the prophets of old john had no problem at all exposing false thinking wrong thinking listen to this account verse 7 but when he saw many of the pharisees and sadducees coming to the baptism he said to them you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come bear fruit in keeping with repentance And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So speaking of phonies, he'd sniffed out a few. These religious people, Pharisees and Sadducees, they'd come down to the river to kind of check things out, see what was going on maybe even trying to recruit John into their own ranks. But instead, what happens? They get skewered by John. I mean, he basically calls them out. He had done his homework, he knew what these guys stood for, and he calls them out publicly. And in so doing, he exposes some of the wrong thinking, the errors in thinking that they had embraced. And he explodes some myths you could say that John had a ministry of (laughs) myth-busting. He knew what they were thinking, and he wanted to blow it up. Like this myth. Hey, I'm very religious, so I don't need to repent. He knew that's what some of them were thinking. They were just kind of smug in a religious sense. But you see, John believed what Jesus would later say, that there are actually two ways to be lost and separated from God, right? Rebellion and religion. Both prodigals and Pharisees both need to repent. Prodigals need to repent of their sin, and Pharisees need to repent of their self-righteousness and superior condemning attitude towards others, which is also sin. Religious smugness. You know, sometimes, I'm a pastor, so I have these kinds of thoughts. I wonder how many churchgoers are actually headed for hell and don't know it. Yeah, you know, they come to church every week open the Bible, sing songs, but they're on their way to hell and they don't realize it. You know, religion doesn't save. Jesus saves. Religion, if it's based on earning God's favor by doing good works, will send a person straight to hell. John and Jesus said this over and over and over again. So here John confronts the danger of religious smugness, And he explodes the myth that religious people don't need to repent. We all need to repent and keep repenting. The second myth John busted wide open was this thinking. Well, I can repent without changing my life. (laughs) And John's like, I don't think so. That's false repentance. That's fake repentance. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, he yelled out at these Pharisees who were Coming down to the river. You see, a person can say they are repentant, but still continue on in their selfish, self absorbed ways, right? That's the danger of fake repentance, and John confronts that head on and carves up the myth that there's repentance without life change. The third myth that John consigned to the trash heap is this I'm good with God because of my godly heritage, my godly parents or grandparents. I'm saved, I'm right with God because I have Christian parents. You know, Jewish people were always inclined to point to their godly heritage as the basis for God's favor on them because all ethnic Jews were descended from a great patriarch named Abraham, that's right, and of course all the great promises were given to Abraham and many Jews believed that they were part of God's people because they were descended from Abraham. John wanted them to know that was false security, he exploded that, you know that's still around today, false security, do you know there are people who think that they're saved, that they're Christians because their parents are Christians, or because their grandparents were religious people, or because they, their parents brought them up in church, and they're thinking I'm good, we're good, my parents brought me to church and they're Christian folks. Or some people think, I'm, I'm a Christian, I'm right with God because my parents had me baptized when I was an infant, so I'm all good now with, with God. By the way, that's one of the reasons that we don't baptize infants. We don't want to give the mistaken impression that the faith of a parent gets automatically transmitted to their children. Now, the truth is that every individual person has to make their own response to the gospel message, right? God doesn't have any grandchildren only children. And so everybody's got to make their own choice, their own response when they hear the message of the gospel. Now, of course, there's a proper appreciation for having godly Christian parents and having been brought up in church. Sure, absolutely. But no one is going to ride into heaven on their parents' coattails. Not those Jews, not us. A fourth error is to think like this. Well, When judgment day comes, I'm going to be saved from God's wrath, even if my life on earth did not bear any good fruit. Again, John begs to differ. That kind of faith, he would say, is misguided. The truth is that the fruit reveals the root. Isn't that right? So apple trees produce apples, and orange trees produce oranges, and buckeye trees produce buckeyes. And those declared righteous by Jesus produce righteous works. Now, let me be clear. It's not that our good works earn us a spot in heaven. It's not that you accept Jesus and then try your best to be a good Christian and hope that you're good enough one day to make it in. No. We are not saved by our good works, but we are saved for good works you understand that distinction? It's crucial to understand. We are not saved by our good works. We're saved by grace of God alone. We could never be good enough to earn God's favor. But when God's transforming grace takes root in our hearts and we become born again, we are saved for good works. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 makes that very, very clear. In fact, the proof The evidence that your heart has been transformed, that Jesus has redeemed you, is the proof of your godly lifestyle that will flow out of a transformed heart. If you're saved and you know it, then your life will surely show it, right? Do you know anybody who believes any of those myths? Do you believe any of those myths? If so, it's the mercy of God today to bring us the ministry of John the Baptist to expose those lies and blow them up and bring us the truth that salvation comes only through faith in Jesus Christ. And speaking of Jesus Christ, like all faithful prophets, John deflected all attention and devotion to him, to God. Verse 11, John says, I baptize you with water for repentance. That was what his baptism was. Was about. But he who is coming after me, who's that? Jesus, his cousin, is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And so now here's the crux of John's message that he came to bring. John was convinced that his ministry and purpose was to prepare the way for someone else. People were drawn to John, but John pointed them. To Jesus, That is so refreshing to me. You know, in a celebrity culture like ours, where people are prone to make superstars out of actors and athletes and even preachers sometimes, it is so refreshing to see the self-effacing, humbling ministry of John the Baptist. You know, before long, it would come to a point where John wasn't filling the stadiums anymore with people because all the people were flocking to Jesus. And you know what? That was okay with John. He was heard to say things like, hey, I'm not the light, but I point people to the light. He must, what? Increase, and I must decrease. Besides, I'm not really even worthy to carry his sandals. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's so refreshing. John started out as like a bright marquee sign attracting people to himself. But ultimately, his goal was to be a signpost pointing those those same people to somebody else. And that's a part of John's ministry that you and I can share, right? Pointing people to Jesus. We're not about saying, hey, look at us. Look how impressive we are. We're awesome. No, we're about pointing people to that man who died on that cross and rose from the grave. Well, That's what John did. He wasn't the headliner. Jesus was, and he knew it. Then he makes this curious statement that that Jesus would baptize people too, but not with water. He said, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and and fire. Well, that's an interesting baptism. I, I think this is a reference to two future occurrences separated by a couple thousand years. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, in my view, was... That which happened on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out on that new church, those new believers, and where they were empowered by the power of the Spirit to be witnesses for Christ. And then second, this baptism by fire, I believe that refers to a future judgment that has not yet come. A judgment of fire coming on those who reject Messiah. And so, once again, we can say that John sounds like the prophets of old he's proclaiming the coming judgment the coming separation and he uses an analogy from the agricultural culture that he lived in verse 12 his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire so you know how in those days to get the wheat they would there would be a threshing floor and there would be this big fork like thing and they'd toss it up in the air and the chaff which was lighter would kind of blow off to the side and the wheat would settle back down to the floor the chaff would be gathered together and it was kindling, it would be thrown into the fire and the wheat would be gathered up and stored in barns and so John says there's coming a day when Jesus is going to separate people into two groups two groups he was really just repeating the message of all the other prophets and preachers and teachers in the Bible ultimately There are only two kinds of people in the world and it's not Democrats and Republicans. It's not black and white. It's not Browns fans and Steelers fans. Two kinds of people in the world ultimately, right? The saved and the lost. The children of the light and children of darkness. The saints and the sinners. Here it's the the wheat and the chaff. There are those who believe and those who don't. There are th- those who love Jesus Christ and have embraced him and his work, and those who have rejected Jesus Christ and refused to embrace him and his work. There are those who are on their way to heaven with Jesus, and there are those who are on their way to hell. All other distinctions among us pale in comparison with that distinction. Two kinds of people in the end. Oh, how our culture bristles at that message. Our culture tells us, everybody's the offspring of God, everybody's children of God, we're all going to heaven. That's classic liberal theology, and it does not square with the word of God. Ultimately, there's going to be a separation. Which side are you on? So John prepared the way for Jesus by carrying out the ministry of a prophet speaking for God to the people, calling them to repent and to turn to God, baptizing those he deemed were sincere, and then pointing them to Jesus as the true and promised Savior King who was to come. He even called his own cousin the one who is mightier than I. John believed Jesus was the one who would save his people and empower them with the Spirit and ultimately judge all who would reject him. And then... Matthew allows us to eavesdrop on a very special event that really kicked off and launched Jesus' public ministry. What was it? His baptism, right? The baptism of Jesus. Verse 13 Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, (laughs) and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness the right thing to do, John. And so he consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my, no, let me, let me try that again, this is my beloved Son, with him I am very pleased. Wow. What a a moment, huh? The cousins meet up, now as adults. And it's for a divinely orchestrated, unbelievably significant event, the baptism of Jesus Christ. I think what that unique event really amounted to was an inauguration ceremony of sorts. Jesus the king had finally arrived. The righteous ruler was here. And there on the banks of the Jordan River, Jesus of Nazareth, age 30 in earth years was being recognized and authorized to begin his reign over the lives of people as king all the necessary elements were present the testimony of his cousin john the spirit of god descending upon him empowering him and of course the booming voice of the father in heaven this is my son i'm very pleased with him so here i believe we have the commissioning and deputizing of jesus the king. There's a lot we could say about this, but let me briefly point out four things that Jesus' baptism shows us, okay? Number one, it shows us that Jesus was humble. Now, did Jesus have to be baptized? I mean, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. Did Jesus need to repent? No, he didn't need to repent because he didn't have any sin. He didn't have any sin because he was the eternal son of God, sinless, and yet he humbled himself and identified with the very people he came to minister to by being baptized. Humble king, that's a new concept, huh? And then I think the baptism of Jesus shows us how rich baptism is, how significant and important baptism is. Because after being baptized himself, Jesus would call all of his followers to be baptized as well. You know, baptism for believers is a symbolic act, right? By being baptized, you're identifying with the one who humbly identified with you. You're stating that you believe that Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection was sufficient to save you from your sins and from the holy wrath of God against sin. And because of that, it's become good news to you. You've believed the gospel. That's the reason to be baptized. And standing there in the water, you're signifying that you're repenting of your sins and you're turning in faith to Jesus Christ as your only hope for forgiveness and for salvation. Now listen, baptism does not wash away your sins. You know this. It does not wash away your sins, but it signifies that you believe your sins have been washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what baptism does. The third thing Jesus' baptism shows us is that the Father was pleased with Jesus not based on his performance but because of his identity. Now this is good. This is rich. Many scholars have pointed out that the Father's statement here from heaven, right? That he was pleased with his son occurred prior to Jesus having done anything yet. Did you catch that? Resisting the devil in the wilderness, turning water into wine, feeding the 5,000, healing the sick, giving sight to blind people, raising the dead, dying on the cross. None of that had happened yet. Jesus hadn't done any of that. And yet the Father says, I'm so pleased with you. There are Bible scholars who believe the reason that we're not given a lot of detail about Jesus' life from, you know, 12 to 30 so that we wouldn't make the mistake of thinking that the Father's affirmation and approval of Jesus was based on all the stuff that he did during those years. It wasn't based on that. I am well pleased with you. That empowering affirmation is based purely on who Jesus was and is. You are my beloved son. That's why I'm pleased with you. That is so significant. I I can't stress it enough. If you're a parent here today, your children desperately need this from you. Some writers have called this the blessing. The blessing, a verbal blessing of your unconditional love and acceptance for your child. Your children, whether they're little guys, mid or way up here, they need this from their parents. They need to know that you love them and believe in them despite their less-than-stellar performance at times, and behavior. If you only bless them verbally when they perform well, what's the message they're going to get? If I perform well, then I'm loved. Is that the message you want to send to your children? Is it? That's called conditional love, and it is crippling to a child. How many little boys grew up to be Mature men still clawing and scratching to get the blessing from their father? How many little girls grow up into grown, mature women still scratching and clawing to get that blessing from their dad or from their mom? How many? Now, I'm not suggesting that if your kid robs a convenience store that you go down to the courthouse and go, hey, way to go, son, I'm so proud of you. (laughs) I'm not suggesting that. But I'm saying building into the regular rhythm of your conversation in the home are these affirmations. I love you. You're my son. You're my daughter. I love you. I don't always like what you do, but I love you. You're my beloved son, my beloved daughter. There is nothing you could do. There is nothing you could ever do that would make me not love you. That is so liberating. That is so liberating. Does that make kids want to go out and just go crazy? Does it? No. No, it gives them something to live into. Wow. Too many dads never say such things to their sons and daughters. I wonder how many crimes could have been prevented if parents had just spoken these words of unconditional acceptance to their kids more often, more sincerely. I wonder how many unplanned pregnancies could have been avoided if dads had just communicated this to their sons and their daughters. I wonder how many mental, emotional disturbances and illnesses could have been prevented if parents had spoken unconditional acceptance into the lives of their children. I wonder about that. If that's you today, if you're one of those parents who's very stingy with your verbal affirmation to your kids, I'm going to pull a John the Baptist on you, okay? Repent! (laughs) Change your life. Change your ways. Let the grace of God so soak your soul that grace pours out of you towards others, towards your children. You say, but I don't like what they do. I don't like what they behave. Of course not. You're not giving a blanket approval to everything they do. You're speaking a word of affirmation to who they are. You're my son. You're my daughter. I love you. That's what the father did for his son. I'm telling you, it put wind in his sails, and it propelled Jesus forward into his mission. By the way, if you're in Christ, if you're in Christ, you hear that same approval from the Father in heaven. You are my beloved son. You're my, my beloved daughter. I am so pleased with you. Because of your performance? No, because you're in Christ. Isn't that beautiful? That's the gospel. The unconditional acceptance of God in Christ. Well, that leads me to a final thing that Jesus' baptism shows us. And it's this, that a secure identity, having a secure identity, clarifies and fuels mission. When you know who you are, it has the effect of clarifying what it is you should be doing. But when we believe false messages about who we are, our identity, it hampers our ability to discover and carry out the God-designed mission that he has for us. How many people are confused and uncertain, scratching around, trying their hand at all kinds of different things in life, trying to figure it out because they don't know who they are. But when you get that clear vision of who God has made you to be, it clarifies what path you're to be on. I have several friends For whom this truth has been not only eye-opening, but life-transforming. Soaking in the truth of who they are in Christ for the first time has given them the courage to reject all the false messages they got growing up and to embrace what God says about them. And for the first time feel secure in their identity and the result is a new clarified sense of what I'm supposed to be doing. My mission in life. Before, they couldn't see it because they were blinded by insecurity. So, at his baptism, Jesus of Nazareth was both affirmed in his identity and commissioned to begin carrying out his kingly reign over the lives of people. And we're the beneficiaries of that. But, In just a few short days both his identity and his mission would be challenged in a way that they had never been up to that point through an excruciating test in the wilderness and that's next week in chapter 4 so I hope you'll be with us for that well for us let me just pull together a few applications for us kind of like I did last week and I again put some numbers on your outline there how many are there three so I'm gonna give you four So, find some white space to squeeze in one more, all right? And the first one is repentance. Repentance. I think the the message of John the Baptist reminds us and challenges us to live a lifestyle of repentance, too. That was his message, right? Repent. I don't think you ever get beyond the need to repent in your Christian life. I don't think you ever attain this level where it's like, you know what? I don't need to repent anymore because I'm awesome. I I don't think you get there. I I think your whole life, if you're honest, you'll be repenting. And, and, And repenting keeps your heart soft and tender towards God so you can receive what he has for you. I've repented of things already today. Have you? Rethink how you think. Second word is witness. Yeah. Because the ministry of John the Baptist reminds us to prepare the way for others to know Jesus too. Prepare the way of the Lord. We're not here trying to attract attention to ourselves, are we? No, we want to deflect attention to Jesus. We want to make him famous, right? He must increase. I must decrease. Man, are are your eyes open to the opportunities God has given you to share Jesus with people at work, in the coffee shop, the neighborhood? If your eyes are open, if your eyes are open, God will show you. This person, this person, this person. So the second word is witness. The third word is baptism. Baptism. The baptism of Jesus by John pictures for us the beauty of submitting to believers' baptism and challenges us to take that step too. And I'm aware that in this room there are probably a number of you who would say, I'm I'm a born-again person, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Jesus, but you've never yet been baptized. Now, John baptized people in a river. You can do that. You can be baptized at Creekside or out here in the creek. It's probably high enough now we could dunk you down in there. Or you can be baptized in the 95 degree water that's in the baptistry right here in this church. Up to you, really. But um, I would challenge you if you've never taken that step, it's a beautiful thing. It's a way that Jesus gave us to identify with the one who identified with us. We take you down underneath the water, and we even bring you back up to picture that resurrection power and life that Jesus gave us. You know, on the back of your celebration card, there's a little box that says, Interested in Baptism. You can just check that box to let us know you'd like some more information about taking that step, and and we will celebrate with you when you do that. And then here's the extra, okay? It's the word grace. The affirmation of Jesus, the Son, by the Father reminds us of the blessed acceptance that we have been given in Christ apart from our performance and the need for us to extend that same grace to others. Right? We've been accepted in Christ apart from our performance so why can we not extend that to others? Our children who need to hear that? It's a powerful statement. Nothing you could ever do would change My love and acceptance of you. That's powerful. And to extend it to fellow church members and small group members and people in our lives. I still want this church to be a grace place, don't you? Where people who are broken and addicted. Gal came up after the first service and said, I've never told this to anybody before. She had her sister there with her. She said, I'm an alcoholic. And I realize now this is a place where I can say that. And the shame... gone and now I can get on a path towards letting Jesus take that away take that out of my life man grace is a wonderful thing let's let's be so enraptured by the grace of Jesus and experiencing of it that we extend that grace to others amen grace place all right well let's bow in prayer together